0: This evening, I just want to take uh, 15 or 20 minutes to overview a very familiar passage with you. Uh, so uh, I invite you to turn your Bibles to First Corinthians 11. Uh, I feel like I gave you a lot to think about this morning, right, with the uh, women in head coverings text. Uh, and our brain is about at full capacity, at least mine is. Mine was at full capacity about five minutes into the sermon uh, this morning. Uh, but I do want to go through this text and remind you of some very valuable pieces. Uh, perhaps there are parts of this text that uh, we don't use or we don't quote as much. And so uh, just an overview fashion, I kind of want to walk us through this. We'll read through it, and I'll, I'll make you aware of uh, some of the things that are going on. Um, this morning, we talked about women and head coverings, and I said that it was a worship problem in the church at Corinth. Uh, It appears as if perhaps some of the women in Corinth were casting off head coverings and Paul had a problem with that. And so uh, he corrects it by giving them uh, a lot of different commands. Uh, But some people don't see the natural connection to the end of chapter 11. I think chapter 11 is all about worship problems in the church. And so uh, at the end of chapter 11, you've got a section about the Lord's table in particular. And Paul's concerned about their corporate worship We can see that because the phrase, when you are gathered together, is used five times in the uh, second half of this book. And so uh, they've got another problem uh, with worship. Now, when you think of the Lord's table or communion, of whom or what do you think? Of what do you think? Uh, Perhaps uh, for some of you, there's a particular place uh, that you imagine, if I were just to say the lord 's supper or the lord 's table, perhaps your home church where you grew up in, you just think of the lord 's table as occurring in that uh, particular location. Uh, for some of us, when we think of the lord 's table, perhaps a passage comes to mind, something like First Corinthians eleven. or well, for me, one of the passages I love is Isaiah chapter one. I know it 's not necessarily about the lord 's table. But Isaiah describes the fact that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, that they be red like crimson. And he continues on to describe, I think, an anticipation of what Christ can do to cover our sins. And so when you think of the Lord's table, maybe it's a place, maybe there's a church, maybe there's a little chapel, maybe there's a passage. Perhaps there's some particular custom. I hope not. But. Um, What I want to uh, really encourage you about is when you think of the Lord's table, a person should come to mind. And of course, the person is the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we overview this, I'm going to try to put emphasis upon that as we go through the text. If you've got an outline this evening, there are just two uh, very easy points. First of all, in verses 17 through 19, Paul introduces a problem in the church. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In verses 17 through 19, I think Paul introduces the problem that he's going to deal with in the church. And the way he introduces it in verse 17, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. Uh, Whether Chloe's people told him that or the three travelers who have made their way from Corinth to Ephesus where Paul is. um, We don't know where he heard it, but he heard their divisions. And as we keep reading in the text, we'll find out that the divisions were occurring at the Lord's table. Or around the Lord's table. The church was dividing up in some way or another. Now we're going to look at that a little bit more in the next section. But one of the interesting things to me in this passage that you don't often hear preached is what Paul has to say about divisions in verse 19. So you look down in your Bibles again and he describes divisions in a very unique way. He says, I partially believe what I'm hearing about there being divisions in the church of Corinth because, what does he say about divisions? He describes divisions as as not only being inevitable in a body of believers, but as being necessary. You see that? He says divisions are necessary in the assembly. I don't know about you, but as a pastor of church, it's not my goal to divide the church. I don't want to divide it up into different groups. A matter of fact, I think throughout the week how we cannot do that from time to time. But one of the interesting things in verse 9 is Paul describes divisions as having a winnowing effect upon the church. And in some ways, this being a necessary thing to occur. To illustrate what I think he's doing is, you know, sometimes we describe persecution as being a good thing for the church you ever heard someone describe it as being a good thing for the church you know really intense persecution and why would that be a good thing for the church well perhaps a few reasons but one of the reasons is it will tell us it will test our each individual's profession of faith in Jesus Christ and it will help us see who is genuine and real Right? So we can talk about the, the, the value of persecution in the church, but when Paul talks about division, I think he's doing something similar. He's saying you know, divisions need to occur sometime within the assembly so that we might see who is genuine and real in the faith. And so while I don't know that we should necessarily look for divisions, when they come sometimes they'll, they'll reveal to us who within this assembly is is genuine in their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. After that introduction, he works through uh, some different problems and punishments in the church. Um, again, we're just surveying, but I think what Paul does is he talks about problems in the, in, in, uh, at, uh, with their worship at the beginning of the next section, verses 20 through 27, and at the end. He's using something called a chiasm. I'm sure Pastor Daniel over the years, or Pastor Keith, talked about a chiasm before, with you before. But uh, basically what he's doing is he's got one topic of conversation at the beginning of this passage, and he returns to it at the end. And the middle, he's just dealing with one other subject. And so the two subjects at the beginning and the end of the text, I think he's talking about problems in the assembly, And in the middle, he's talking about the results that occur, uh, the the possible outcomes to believers for how they approach the Lord's table. So um, we're taking it a bit out of order this evening, but in, in survey fashion, let's see the problems first. In verses 20 through 22 and verses 33 and 34, at the beginning and the end, Paul shows that some believers are approaching the Lord's table selfishly. That's one of the problems associated with the table. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now skip ahead to verse 33, the end of the text. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. It is commonly known of uh, among most believers who actually study this text and other texts about the Lord's table, that there are some differences between the way they celebrated the Lord's table and the way we often celebrate the Lord's table, at least in America today. Okay? And, and those differences uh, involve several things. One would be there's a difference in materials that are used. Okay? Believe it or not, the early church did not have those little thimble-sized cups uh, made with plastic. And they didn't have those little wee crackers. You know, I know that we think that this is the way perhaps things have always been, but there's a difference in materials. Okay. The difference in materials can be seen as in that they all ate from one loaf of bread. They tore pieces of that off. And I know you've heard good preaching on this. They also drank from one cup. I've actually been in a service before overseas where people were all drinking from one cup. They would drink, spin, and someone would wipe it, and then the next person would drink. In our culture, we, often don't, we, we normally don't participate in the Lord's table that way. There's also a difference in the drink that's used, because it's obvious in this text that, at least with the meal associated with the Lord's table, that there was some alcoholic content In the drink that was being used. Not maybe lower level alcohol or whatever. But the text says that some of the Corinthians were not only gorging themselves with food. They were getting drunk on the wine that was used as well. So there's a difference in materials from the way that we would would, uh, participate in America. At least in some churches. There's a difference in procedures as well. One of the procedural differences I think that's important to just point out in the survey is that when they partook in the Lord's Table in the first century, it appears as if there was a feast attached to the celebration of the Lord's Table. A feast called the Agape Feast or the Love Feast. And so there's some dispute about whether the Lord's Table occurred in the middle of the Agape Feast or at the end or at the beginning or somewhere in it. But that, of course, I think is helpful to see as well. Matter of fact, Jude talks about these love feasts. You could write down the reference, Jude verse 12. In Jude verse 12, he says this: Jude says, These false teachers are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead and uprooted. Okay, so there are differences in procedures, and that's a, important to know as well. And then, uh, as I said, uh, there are differences as well in perhaps the size, at least in some congregations. One of the things that uh, helps you to understand First Corinthians is to know that uh, archaeology has helped us understand a little bit more about the buildings that the church would meet in, the homes. The average home in Corinth was a home where in the dining room you'd be able to seat eight to twelve people. That's it. That's it. That's all the more you could squeeze in there. Most of the houses are built in the same fashion. You go there and you see the ancient archaeology. Eight to twelve people in the dining room. If you had more than that, you had to put the rest of the people in the outer courtyard. Okay, and in the outer courtyard you could have maybe 30 to 50 people. And so imagine that sort of scenario for the Lord's table. What I think is going on in our passage is uh, the the host of the church, whoever's home it was, had to make decisions about who was going to be in the inner chamber and who would be in the outside. And it appears, at least to me, as we look through this text, that the people who may have been on the outside are the poor, the have-nots. And that the host was inviting all of his rich friends, believing friends, in the inner chamber to eat the food. And the situation is so bad, if you look in verse 22, Paul asks some very probing questions. He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink your ordinary meals in? And then he asks, do you despise the church of God? I mean, is that why you are segregating this way and you're you're ripping out the poor of any ability to participate in either the agape feast or the lord's table i mean do you despise the poor is that why you're doing this or do you want to shame them that have not i mean is your goal rich believers in corinth do you really want to just humiliate poor believers is that why you're giving them nothing And so then in the final part of this chiasm in verses 33 and 34, Paul gives them a command. Okay, So we've got a problem in the early church at Corinth. Some were approaching the Lord's table selfishly. (laughs) It'd be like someone coming in and just grabbing all the crackers and eating them or drinking all of the juice while others are getting nothing. And so Paul's command in verse 33 is very clear. When you're gathered together to partake in the Lord's table, here's the command, wait for one another. Wait. And now why would Paul command them to wait? I think he'd command them to wait because it would make sure that everyone got something at the Lord's table or at the feast connected with the Lord's table. And So uh, Paul gives this principle of preference for the other believer in Waiting. Um, and as they would wait and as they would eat together and drink together, this would describe the corporate unity or picture the corporate unity of the church. Imagine if we, uh, if we followed this practice at our church picnics. We get out all the food, we distribute it, and then we all wait, make sure there's enough. We, we never have a problem with food content here, do we? I remember the first church that I ever ministered in in West Virginia, I noticed, I wasn't the senior pastor, but I noticed that any time we had a church picnic, there was a family who during the prayer stood up and walked out. Now, I thought it was just because they didn't want to go to the picnic. But then what I found out later is what they were doing is they were standing up, leaving before the prayer was over, so that they could go to the place where the church picnic was and get at the front of the line. And I couldn't help but I was a young preacher, but I couldn't help but think they need a dose of 1 Corinthians 11. Wait for one another. Don't approach the Lord's table selfishly. Well, uh, in this survey we see in verses 23 through 27 in verse 20 that there was another problem or a related problem to that. Not only were some approaching the Lord's table selfishly, Others, or perhaps the same group, were approaching the Lord's table forgetfully. Forgetfully. Look at your Bibles at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup, uh, uh, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then um, I think also connected to this problem is verse 20. And I didn't really say much about it there, but if you go up to verse 20, he says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. What I want to suggest as well is that some of the Corinthians were perhaps forgetting the real reason why they were gathering at the Lord's table. If you notice in the text, Paul says twice, he repeats it twice, I think for emphasis, this command from Christ, this do in remembrance of me, this do in remembrance of me. It seems as if some of the Corinthians, perhaps the rich, were not only approaching the Lord's table in a self-centered manner, getting everything they could, they were failing to remember that the meal was about the Lord. So that in verse 20, when Paul says, when you're gathering together to eat, this is not the Lord's table, I take that as sarcasm. You can call this like a meal. I mean, you're like passing stuff, you're eating stuff and drinking stuff, but let's not call this the Lord's table the Lord's table. And so as I'm working through the text, I see that there are these problems in the church of Corinth. These problems bring about, in the second part of our survey is right in the heart of the text, verses 28 through 32, there are some results, some outcomes of how you approach the Lord's table. And there are two of these as well. I think verses 28 and 29 Describe the outcome of someone who properly approaches the Lord's table. And so there we see true examiners will be protected by God at the Lord's table. Look in your Bible at verse 28. It says, uh, Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I think in verses 28 and 29, as Paul's talking about the Lord's table, he reminds the Corinthians and us that we have a responsibility to examine or, or remember at least two things at the table. So when we gather, the next time we gather together and we partake in the Lord's table, I think we've got two responsibilities. And if we do this, we'll be preserved. God will bless us first verse 28 says we are to examine ourselves another word i'd use to describe this is introspection okay so uh colonial when when we gather and we partake the lord's table i think we've got a responsibility to review our lives review our lives and when god brings sins to our mind we have a responsibility to repent verse 28 says we need to examine ourselves Uh, But verse 29 talks about discerning the body of the Lord at the table. Not only do we need to examine ourselves, but we also need to examine Christ or remember Christ at the table. Okay, so I see these twin responsibilities for us as as we are at the Lord's table. We not only examine ourselves, but we, we, we need to remember the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross for our sins. The time to get into the little phrase to discern the body of the Lord, but I think he's describing uh, the body of Christ and how these these elements are symbolic in and of themselves to, to, to cause us to remember the sacrificial death of Jesus for our sins. And so if the first area of examination is introspection, I would call this one reflection. We need to reflect upon, we need to remember the completed work of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And, you know, I think often, at least in the heritage that I've enjoyed as a believer, I've found that most of the emphasis has been placed upon the first one. So when you gather at the Lord's table, you know, recall every area of sinfulness that you could imagine and confess it to the Lord. But what I found was happening, to me at least, when I partook in the Lord's table often, is it was hard for me to get to the place where I was reflecting upon the completed work of Jesus Christ for my sins. And so what I would say is they're both important. We need to inspect our lives, but if we go the whole way through the Lord's table only considering our own sinfulness since the last table, and we fail to remember Jesus, is it really the Lord's table? And so when we think of communion, we must not only think of a passage or think of our sin, we must think of a person. And the very elements themselves are designed to remind you of that sacrifice. So... Verses 28 and 29, I think he's describing the right way to partake in the Lord's table. But then we'll end in verses 30 through 32 where he describes the fact that abusers will be punished. Look at verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's apparent that some of the Corinthians were approaching the Lord's table selfishly and forgetfully, forgetting to remember what it was all about. And as a result, they were sick and weak. And some of them had even passed away as a result of the chastisement and or the discipline and training of the Lord. And uh, while there's a lot in the text we could talk about, there's a lot in verses 30 through 32, uh, I think the main point is that abusers of the Lord's table will be punished, chastised, chastened by God. Just a few years ago, uh, my grandmother passed away. And uh, we had the privilege of going up to Pennsylvania not too long ago um, and uh, had uh, the opportunity at one point to actually go down to her house. But to be honest with you, I don't really like going down there. Just going to her house, there are just certain things about her home that just like remind me of her. It was interesting, not too long ago, I was walking down the sidewalk and I heard someone laugh. And I turned because it sounded like my grandmother. There are certain holidays, certain times of the year when I think of her, especially like Christmas or things like that. The Lord's table should be a regular reminder to us of the person, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice for our sins. We must remember And anticipate a person at the table of the Lord. I trust that the the overview is a good reminder to us of our wonderful Savior.